And uh, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 this evening. And let's begin by reading our text together. John writing, And after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! And the the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen and hallelujah. And from one of the thrones came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Have you ever been to a movie theater and at the end of the movie, as the credits begin to roll, people begin to applaud? Have you ever seen that dynamic? Twice in my life, though, I found myself sitting in a theater amongst a large group of people who began to applaud, not at the very end, but at the climax of the movie when the good guys finally won. Some years back, Dean and I were sitting in the theater as we were watching the re-release of Star Wars, the very first one, the original one, whatever number that was. And at that moment, the Death Star exploded, the theater erupted in applause, and we were standing there amazed, so we just started clapping like they could hear us. The second time I saw that happen, happened to be at the third installment of the famous trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. When Frodo and Sam finally got the ring and the, the um, lava of Moldor and it, it dissipated and finally uh, Sauron was destroyed. I think that's the name of the villain of the Lord of the Rings. And the theater erupted in applause even before the movie ended. It's interesting how the climax of good over evil can provoke rejoicing and celebration. If these theaters, these moving pictures warranted a round of applause, how much more will the celebration be when this world system 
Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, have been judged and dealt with once and for all by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, ushering in his return. That's going to be spectacular, isn't it? And here we find ourselves in Revelation 19, and often in a rush to get to the actual return of Christ described for us in verse 11, we move through the first 10 verses very quickly without giving them real um, attention. Remember in Revelation 18.20, where we left off last week, we were instructed, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. What is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the judgment of the great harlot Babylon. In Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, Babylon has finally been dealt with once and for all. At John's moment in time, that epicenter was Rome. From our position now that Rome has, um, has completely been uh, dismantled, we're going to see a revision of that. We're going to see a new world empire in these last days. And it's that world system that is finally going to be brought to an end. And what we find in Revelation 19 is rejoicing, where we find the word hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, used over and over and over again. It is a time of rejoicing. It is a time that the New Testament saint looks forward to his entire time, her entire time. The return of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is read through the New Testament epistles and you find from John and Peter and Paul and Jude the great anticipation of the Lord's return. It is key critical, it is a cornerstone of the Christian faith that we as believers in Jesus Christ hold to the perusa, the return of the Lord. Believing in a physical return of the Lord. In chapter 19, we are going to find them rejoice for three different reasons. In the first four verses, we'll discover that they are going to rejoice because sin has been judged. In 5 and 6, we're going to discover that they're going to rejoice under the umbrella of hallelujah because God is now reigning. And lastly, they're going to rejoice because the marriage supper of the Lamb has finally come, verses 7 through 10. And as we make our way through this incredible section of Scripture, let us remember that it is a time of rejoicing that is meant to contrast the weeping and the despair of the kings and merchants that we read in Revelation 18 as they saw the world system collapsing before them. They weeped because no longer was life going to be like it always had been, and their wealth and their prosperity and their power had all now been subdued by the judgment of God, and now the Christians can rejoice. Those in Christ can rejoice. And that's what we see happening over and over and over again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In Revelation 19.1 we read, And after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
for his judgments are true and just. For he is, uh, has judged the, I'm sorry, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! And the smoke from her goes up forever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. As we begin, we find that the world system has been brought to a place of an end due to the judgment of God. The world is now crying out in rejoicing over the fact that it has finally been done away with. As one wrote when he read this, he said in chapter 18, the merchants of the earth and the kings lamented because of the fall of Babylon. But here, heaven is rejoicing. Babylon was the source of all religious deception and confusion. Babylon was the cause, has caused the death of multitudes of God's saints. And now Babylon has been destroyed. In fact, the fall of Babylon merits three hallelujahs from heaven. We're introduced to this great multitude once again that we were introduced to once earlier in Revelation. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we read that there was a great multitude taken out of the tribulation. As John wrote, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When John asked who these people were, the angel instructed, These are those that have been brought through or brought out of the great tribulation. And they praise him in a round of hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There should be an exclamation point at the end of that word. It is complete and utter jubilation, for God has finally dealt with this world system. And notice the second thing that they praise him for. For his judgments, verse 2, are true and just. Listen to what one wrote about that. Periodically, newspapers introduce a solitary figure who, after years of imprisonment, is set free because of new evidence proving he was falsely indicated and convicted, indicted and convicted. While a judge or jury void of moral judgment conceivably could knowingly convict someone of a crime that they knew he did not commit, the vast majority of these cases of injustice represent errors in human judgment. Since God is omniscient, he is incapable of making error. So though he remains the only judge in the cosmos whose judgment is inevitably true and he is also impeccably just. There is no error on God's behalf. God sees everything as it actually is. So when this judgment occurs, there's going to be no error. He's going to do it in complete righteousness. Sin will be dealt with. This world system will be dealt with. And no longer can anyone claim that they are innocent because of the fact that he sees all things as they are. 
nobody is getting away with anything. And though they might seem to get away with it here in this world, the ultimate accountability will come before a righteous God. And many today have a problem with that notion of God's righteousness and justice. That they don't believe that God has that authority. It's because of a grossly diminished idea of who God is. It's a complete lack of understanding of who God is that would allow them that presumption. To think that we are not accountable to the God whom created us is rebellion in and of itself. But let us know that when God judges, either the individual or the world collectively, He does it out of truth and justice. There is no mistake Nobody will be wrongly indicted. See, the whole world is guilty before God. The whole world has been tainted and has been infected with the disease of sin. That disease is terminal. It's the number one cause of death in America and the world. And the only cure for it is Jesus Christ. And if you are apart from Christ, you stand before God completely guilty, sinful before Him. And that sinful nature doesn't allow us any possibility of saving ourselves in any way, shape, or form. We cannot do it. We cannot outweigh our wrong with our rights. We cannot try to strive to be a good person by society's standard and think that that carries merit with God in any way, shape, or form. We are totally separated from God under His wrath because of our sin and rebellion against Him. And we stay in that condition until there is a radical change in our lives that only can take place once we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So it does not surprise me that one who is in sin, apart from Christ, would tell me that he or she believes God is unjust for condemning anyone to hell for eternity. It's only a manifestation of their internal rebellion, isn't it? They're only being honest with what's really going on in their heart. Because if they would acknowledge the fact that He is just for doing so, that should move them to look for a Savior. And the only Savior that's going to be found is Christ. So when God judges the entire world, He will do it justly, and He will do it perfectly, because He's incapable of judging in error. And that's something very important for you and I to know. So as they continue this praise of God, the knowing that His judgments are true and just, there is no error within it. For He has judged the great prostitute. They praise Him for that. The only one who could dismantle this world system created by the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet is God Himself. And this system has corrupted the entire earth. 
The individuals of the earth were already in a position of corruption even before this, but they bought into it further, suppressing the knowledge of God in unrighteousness and rebelling against Him completely. It wasn't just the fault of this corrupt world. The world is corrupt because man is corrupt. And because man is corrupt, the world is now reflecting that corruption. And the world is corrupt. And it's a circle. It's a circular uh, thinking. This is the corruption that no one could break except God himself. And that's what he has finally done. He has broken the circle. He has changed the course of everything because he has interceded and he has judged. And now he brings a finality to this. And as we move into Revelation 21 and 22, he makes all things brand new. It's a fantastic thing. And that deserves a hallelujah, doesn't it? And then thirdly, he avenges the blood of his servants. If you remember back, as we look back into Revelation chapter 6, 10 and 11, remember these words. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And remember his words. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That plea has now been fulfilled. And as a result, all heaven erupts in hallelujah. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 106, which I believe is the end of the fourth book of the Psalms. He said this, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, and here is that word, Amen, praise the Lord, as we are reading here. It is encapsulated in the word, Hallelujah. It is something to rejoice over. In verse 3, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And in the Greek it's continuing, so let's just continue on. Ever and ever. It's not going back. We're not doing it again. It's over. It's done. We're not going back. That's what they're rejoicing over. That's what the symbolism means, that it's gone. It's done. It's over. You can almost feel the relief in those words and the excitement and the, and the growing jubilation of the individual. It's over. It's done. Now we can go forward. Now all eternity with our Lord. Things have been righted. Things have been vindicated. All things are right in, in the world as we get back to the way it was supposed to be. And the 24 elders who we met earlier in the book of Revelation and the four living creatures, which the four living creatures are most likely angels. The 24 elders, there's debate on who those represent. The panoramic display of all those in Christ. Um is probably the most likely. 
and they fell down and worshipped God. That's what we really must see and learn this evening. Who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Every once in a while, someone will say to me what their anticipation of their entrance into heaven will be like. And they also have an idea of what they think they're going to do once they get there. Oh, I'm finally going to ask God all those questions I never knew the answer to. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. I I don't know how I can get past just saying, praise the Lord, I'm here. I don't know if I'll be able to even utter a word seeing the splendor and the majesty of my God. Well, all I'd be able to say is hallelujah, and then I ask myself, is that not enough to say? Praise the Lord. And I can't even imagine these individuals as they continue on. As one wrote, and I'd like to read this to you. Because some may be struggling here at this moment. Is it truly a Christian response to appear to rejoice over the judgment of others? Well, one commented on that, Robert Mounts, in his commentary. He said that it could appear to some that rejoicing over the judgment is something less than a Christian response. Should the destruction of a mighty city and its effect upon all who do business with it be the cause of universal rejoicing? The answer is that it is not the actual suffering of those who are punished that brings rejoicing and part of the redeemed, but the fact that God has vindicated His cause in the world. Nothing less than the character of God is at stake. The one who promised the martyrs that their willingness to sacrifice their lives would not go unacquitted, but must of necessity bring judgment on their oppressors. The redeemed shout hallelujah, not because tyrants are suffering, but because God has vindicated himself by bringing about the punishment that they deserve. Actual righteous judgment. And it is that that we rejoice over. And then they go to move to rejoice over the fact that God reigns. Look with me in verse 5. And from the throne came a voice, most likely one of the four living creatures, we don't know for sure, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. First we begin with the invitation and the exhortation to praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him. That fear is a reverence and a respect for God that moves and motivates one to act accordingly. Something that is grossly uh, dismissed in our society today. It is evident that many Christians have lost a true fear of the Lord. I'm not talking about a fear that causes me to cower in a corner 
paralyzed, trembling, unable to move. I'm talking about a fear and respect, understanding who my God is. Causing my heart, my mind, my entire being to interact with Him in an appropriate manner. With respect. With gladness and joy because He has allowed me an audience with Himself. Being grateful that through Christ, not only can I be redeemed and I can be atoned for and I can be brought back into a relationship that had been severed by sin through the person of Jesus Christ, but now I'm also added, as an added benefit, an added blessing, I can now interact with the God of all creation and I am invited and welcomed into His throne room of grace. Those who fear the Lord. A proper understanding of God derived through the study of Scripture will cause a natural fear of the Lord in the heart and the mind of the believer in in, in God, in Jesus Christ. An incomplete understanding of Scripture would often allow our attitudes to be flippant towards God. To merely reduce Him as my friend. He is my friend, but more importantly, He is my Father. And He has authority over me. And He is my King, and He is my Lord. And He has authority over me. I was bought and paid for by a price, not with precious stones or silver and gold, but by the blood of my Savior, Jesus Christ. He has authority over me. The fear of the Lord. Those who fear God, they are calling now, say hallelujah. Because God has dealt and now God reigns. I think that understanding this point right here, as you see it move through the New Testament, and the reason I say that is because as the Old Testament looked up to the coming of Jesus Christ, at that moment that Jesus Christ manifested himself into the world through the, through the birth of there in the manger, because Christ existed before the manger in heaven for all eternity past, the second of the Trinity, the Son, the eternal Son, he came then down, he made that step out of heaven, he came down, was born a man, and that at that point, it was like the... Uh, the, the valley, it, it, it got to a certain place and now it's going back up. We got to there and now it's going back up. As the world was declining, now it's going back up. The world itself is continuing to decline, but God set a trajectory for all who are in the kingdom of God that we are now going up through him. As he heralded that the kingdom of God was now at hand, it, it sounded seditious to the Romans and that's why there was such controversy concerning him. But what he was saying is that it's now beginning. And for 2,000 years, we've been getting close to that climax that what he bought and paid for there at the cross, he now comes to possess and to uh, take for himself and now reign physically here on the earth. This is what the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament were looking forward to and couldn't understand when Christ, claiming to be Messiah as he was, wasn't looking to fulfill in his first coming. 
They thought at that moment that he was going to release them from the Roman oppression. That that moment he was going to return them to the zenith that they enjoyed under King David. But it wasn't in that advent that he was going to establish those things. It was going to be at his second coming. That's why some Jewish teachers and rabbis thought that two messiahs were going to come based on the prophecy of the Old Testament. One to suffer, one to reign in victory. Not understanding that the suffering servant would come first as he died on the cross and made atonement for sin, releasing us from our greatest greatest bondage. The physical bondage of Rome was a bondage that they dealt with, but the greater bondage was this bondage to sin. But at that moment, after the resurrection, the kingdom of God started. And it's going to climax. And now we who are part of that kingdom are physically, at the return of Jesus Christ, going to have a king. We have a king now, right? But we're separated from him. But after he returns, we'll be with him. That's a glorious thing right there. And deserves a hallelujah. Listen to what one said. As he read these verses, this was what he wrote in his devotional journal. It seems that all of heaven's voices unite to praise God because he is God. Because he is on the throne, omnipotent means all-powerful. It is in this theme that Handel uses his magnificent hallelujah chorus. How we ought to praise God because He is on the throne. I like how he said that initially. Simply praising God because He is God. And now we will enjoy that reign of God as He comes and returns to the earth. John was very daring. In the book of Revelation, he uses a title for God more often than any other place in the New Testament that is Almighty. As one wrote when he considered the background of this and possibly the intentions of John and why he used such a a term so confidently, listen to what he said. In the historical context of a proud and powerful Roman Empire, for John to call God the Almighty is an act of extreme confidence. Domitian, the emperor at that time, had conferred upon himself the title our Lord and God. Literally, the word means one who holds all things in his control. However, nine times in Revelation, John uses it of God, while only once it is found elsewhere in the New Testament. So to the reader at that time, reading that word almighty and being it given to God where it rightfully belongs... It doesn't matter what Domitian said of himself. We know who's truly on the throne. Domitian's reign is temporary at best. Our God will reign for all eternity. And lastly, that brings us to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pick it up in verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. I just love the language, don't you? You know, 
when I was younger, I used to love loud concerts. Okay? I'm a little bit older now. I still like loud concerts. But going to those concerts, one of the things we always looked forward to is when we heard the drummer's drum solo and he hit those bass drums and you could just feel it hitting your chest. It's like the more it knocked the wind out of you, the better it was. You know, this is great. You know, this was fantastic. Couldn't hear for a week because of the ringing in my ears, but I had a good time. I hear John's explanation. I, I mean, his uh, writing of this, his, uh, the words that he uses to illustrate this, to describe what he is seeing. I can't wait for that. Can you? To hear it that, that volume. Have you ever been to a classical concert? Well, it's amazing how loud those classical concerts can actually be. Because the auditorium is architected in a way that allows for the amplification of the sound. And even some of the softest progressions are heard. The softest melodies and maybe on the wind instruments themselves can be heard in the back of the auditorium. And then I think of this. Peals of thunder. The roars of many waters. It's just miraculous. You talk about being caught up in something. I mean, I don't want to lose this for a moment. This is the celebration of the New Testament, the Bible. This is it. And I don't want to miss a moment of it. I don't want to uh, lose a minute of the experience of it as John explains it to us. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The confidence again that the writer speaks of and willing to speak of even in the light of the adversary, the Roman Empire himself, he's saying, no, it is my God who reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the moment that the believer in Christ has been waiting for. Undoubtedly, throughout the Bible, God has spoken about his relationship with his people and has described it as a marriage, even into the Old Testament. As Hosea writes in Hosea 2, 19 through 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Or Isaiah, when he wrote in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of all the earth he is called. Paul brings this into the New Testament when he states in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betroth you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. Or as Paul made the ultimate comparison 
in Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. And I'd like to read this to remind ourselves this evening of this relationship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it that it refers to Christ and the church. As Robert Mounts wrote in his commentary, he wanted us to understand the parallel between this and a Jewish wedding. He said, In biblical times, a marriage involved two major events, the betrothal and the wedding. These were normally separated by a period of time during which the two individuals were considered husband and wife and such were under the obligation of faithfulness. The wedding then began with a procession to the bride's house, which was followed then by the return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. And by analogy, the church espoused to Christ by faith now awaits the perusa when the heavenly groom will come for his bride and return to heaven for the marriage feast which lasts throughout eternity. So first question, notice in whom we shall marry. Out of all the titles that it is given, it talks about marriage to the Lamb. It could have been King of Kings, it could have been Lord of Lords, and none of of us would object to that. But I think it is interesting that John uses the word lamb here to remind us of what it cost our Savior to purchase us, to betroth us. That we would never forget the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that He made on our behalf. That we would always be remembrant of it. And so the title of lamb is used to talk about this blessed event that I am truly looking forward to. And notice it says that his bride has made herself ready, but it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Many ask, when will this take place? Well, some believe that it'll take place if you hold to a pre-tribulation position of the rapture that'll happen at the time of the rapture. Some believe that it'll happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. But if you look here in our text, it seems more suited that it would happen just prior to the millennial kingdom, just prior to his event, his return. Meaning that this would be enjoyed by us before the millennial kingdom is established. We don't know for sure, but we can be sure that it will occur. Now, many believe that it is very important that we notice what we shall wear to this banquet, 
this feast, this celebration. Notice that we prepare ourselves, but it has been granted to us to do so. Showing that I believe that the righteousness that we avail ourselves with, we have the responsibility in Christ to be obedient to Him in those things that we do and how we conduct ourselves, but never forgetting that ultimately it was never our righteousness that brought us into the kingdom of God. It's the righteousness from Christ that we have been availed with that has allowed us our entrance into the kingdom of God. I love what Paige Patterson says in his commentary. Let me read this to you. A second observation has to do with the bride making herself ready. She has clothed herself in fine linen, which is bright, pure, and clean. And this fine linen stands for the righteousness of the saints. Verse 8. How radiantly beautiful the bride of Christ appears as she has prepared herself to be presented to the Lamb. However, her beauty is a bestowed beauty. For John is also informed that the clean, bright, white linen she is wearing was given to her to wear. That's found in the word granted for her to wear. Again, the emphasis on grace and redemption is brought to the, the forefront. It is almost every conceive, in almost every conceivable way, the apocalyptic man, uh, magnifies the grace of God in salvation. The righteousness of the church and those who make up the bride of Christ is not an acquired righteousness, but a bestowed righteousness upon the individual. It is Christ's righteousness that will be availed in us. And let us remember that it's going to be at this time that Jesus will fulfill a promise that he made to us. Remember that night that he ate that Passover with his disciples just prior to going to the cross? And after drinking of the cup, he said of this, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new, with you in my Father's kingdom. It is at this moment that he drinks it with us, I believe. It's at this moment that he has fulfilled his promise to us. And then notice as John continues in verse 9. And the angel said to him, I'm sorry, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I love that. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words are true. These are the words of God. And John could only do, I believe, what John did at this moment. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. For I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This is that moment that in his as he is just enthralled with just the joy of all that is going on, he just falls before the angel and begins to worship. And the angel corrects him. 
The angel will not allow for that worship to be given to him, knowing that he is a fellow servant of God himself. But blessed are all those who are invited to the supper of the Lamb. That is you, and that is I, that is everyone in Christ. Blessed are you who are invited. He ends with this last statement. As the angel in a moment of correction is also teaching John and reminding John and reminding you and I here this evening to worship God for all of the hallelujahs have been totally, totally deservant that God has been given by His servants. It is God in whom we worship. And then he makes this statement at the end that we should never miss. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As one wrote of this, he says, the spirit of both the proclamation and the telling of the future is bound up in the testimony of Jesus the Lamb. And not just a chronology of the last things. It is the theme of Revelation. As John Wolverd wrote distinctly and clearly, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and the loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we began from the beginning, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling is the unveiling of Christ as He returns to His place of prominence and position that He occupies currently. And then we will see physically after he returns to this earth. In closing, I would like you to turn to Titus with me. And I want to leave you with these words that Paul left his, with his servant Titus because I feel they're so appropriate for us this evening. And sums up and wraps up for us everything that we have been discussing. It's an exhortation. In verse 11 of chapter 2 of Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disagree with you. What appropriate closing words for us in the moment. As we look forward to this great celebration that will climax in the marriage supper of the Lamb for all of us who are in Christ, this is what awaits us. This is the hope that we have. And I would encourage you this evening to go back and to read these 10 verses and to really, truly absorb what these individuals are crying hallelujah for. This is it. This is the culmination of everything. This is why I didn't want to rush through this. 
Because this is the opening music. The prelude to everything else that's about to take place. If you've ever been in one of those theaters and all of a sudden everything goes dark and they start this incredible music to amp up the auditorium, waiting for the performer to come out. I don't want to reduce our Savior to that, but my point is this. All heaven will shake with the hallelujah of all people. Heaven and earth will rejoice in such a way and the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. And I didn't want to miss this for a moment because it is part of the return. 